Okay, let's go back to uh, Mark's Gospel this morning, chapter 7. The nation of Israel failed its mission to Gentile nations in a twofold way. As God's chosen people, they were to worship and serve him exclusively, and in doing so, they would be a light to the Gentiles, showing them the only true God. Their first failure was the cause of their exile into Babylon. They became so like the Gentiles that God had to kick them out of the promised land. Of course, we know in his mercy, he let them return, but they failed again in their mission as time moved forward. They became legalistic in their relationship to God, serving them with their lips rather than their hearts, And by the time of Jesus, they had totally separated themselves from Gentile nations uh, and viewed them as unclean, actually calling them Gentile dogs. And so they, they really failed to show the light of God to them in that time either. And to enter into the land of the Gentile, to come into contact with one of them made you, in their minds, ritually unclean. It was almost unthinkable uh, for a proselyte to come into Judaism. Now, when Jesus came, he showed the error of the Orthodox Jewish religionists, if we could call them that. He was not afraid to heal unclean lepers, to eat with tax collectors and sinners, uh, to teach that eating certain foods is not what made you unclean, rather what came out of you made you unclean. And in Mark's gospel, the rest of chapter 7 and also chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates that Gentiles do not make you unclean by coming into contact with them. And for the first time, he purposely leaves Galilee and he goes to a region foreign to the Jews. The areas of Tyre and Sidon and Decapolis were all heavily populated with Gentile people. And although Jesus did not go there strictly uh, to minister, he ends up ministering to these people that are considered untouchables in their day. And it really was a prelude, uh, a prelude, if you will, to the gospel expanding to the world after his death and resurrection. Now, three miracles are recorded by Mark that occurred on this journey outside of Judaism. Jesus first casts out a demon from the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. He heals a deaf man. And then in chapter 8, he feeds the 4,000, not in the land of uh, Israel, but over in the region of Decapolis. And uh, even those, uh, uh, in doing this, uh, his ministry uh, in this particular area was a demonstration of his love, his concern for people that were even outside of Judaism in his day. Those who were considered by them as unclean unreachable in his generation. But unfortunately, the church may have some similar attitudes and reaching those we deem unclean in our generation. So as we consider this passage, 
let's be reminded of our mission in spreading the gospel to the world today. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing upon your word today. We're thankful again that it demonstrates to us the power of Jesus to heal any kind of uh, disease, any kind of a situation. And we're thankful, Lord, that he ministered in this way. But most of all, Lord, we're thankful that he reached out beyond the nation of the Jews to the Gentile regions. And this just kind of gives us an idea of what's going to happen in the future after he gives his life to redeem us and he raises himself from the dead and goes back to heaven. We see, Lord, the, the uh, indication of the spread of the gospel in this story. Again, Lord, help us to realize that uh, there are very few people in the world, if any, that are untouchable, that we cannot try to reach with the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you'll uh, inspire us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so let's take a look here this morning at uh, this uh, situation where Jesus comes into contact with a Syrophoenician woman, and it really demonstrates uh, faith from a so-called unclean Gentile. Now let's back up here, verse 24, and uh, uh, see uh, what's going on here. As Jesus rose from there, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now Mark strategically places this segment here uh, in connection with what has preceded it. Now, in his confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus earlier pointed out that what goes into your body does not defile you. What comes out of your heart is what defiles you. And he thus <clears throat> declared by that statement that all foods were going to become clean under the new kingdom, the kingdom of the gospel, and not uh, it wasn't going along with the oral tradition of the elders of that day. He also points out now in this new journey that going into Gentile countries does not make you unclean. He's demonstrating that people aren't unclean either. So coming into contact with them, mingling with them, that does not defile you or make you ritually unclean. It was not yet the time for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles, but Jesus is showing that the door is open and it will be wide open in the future. Now, Jesus and his disciples travel to this uh, area of Tyre and Sidon, about 40 miles northeast of the Lake uh, Galilee of Capernaum, where it was the center of their ministry. And it's, of course, located along the uh, uh, western shore of the Mediterranean, or eastern shore of the Mediterranean coast. <clears throat> These cities were very prosperous in that day because of the sea trade. The trade routes that passed along the coast there, and historically we know they were pagan people. You remember that King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, was from this area, and through her, Baal worship was brought into the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Mark does not reveal why Jesus went to this place. We don't really uh, know. It wasn't initially to minister because we're told here he went into a house, probably in the country, and he didn't want anybody to know about it. 
So we kind of surmise from what we've seen so far that sometimes Jesus did this. He got away with his disciples to escape the, uh, the stress of ministry, but also to minister to them personally, to teach them, to help them to grow in their understanding of who he was. And so it seems to indicate this is what he wanted to do during this time. But we have to remember that a lot of people have been hearing about the Lord Jesus by this time. Uh, back in chapter 3, uh, as people gathered to him all over uh, the region, it mentions that some people came down from Tyre and Sidon, outside the coasts of uh, Galilee. And so they would go back, they would be telling some things about this person, Jesus, and all the great things he's doing, so they would have been able to recognize him. And it's not long before word gets out, and this woman in great distress hears about Jesus and comes to him for help. Now, uh, what's interesting here is that the focus is not on the casting out of the demon, but the discourse between Jesus and the mother who wants uh, her daughter uh, to be made whole. So let's take a look at what happens here. Uh, this woman, in verse 25, comes to the Lord Jesus. She falls down before him, and she tells him about her situation. She's got a, a daughter. Her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, an evil spirit, a demon, and she wants Jesus to cast out this demon from her daughter. Now, have you wondered why this seemed to be so prevalent during the ministry of Jesus? Mark has commented many times on either individual cases or in general, the Lord Jesus exercising these evil spirits. Well, perhaps when there is a great working of God, this very obvious, a movement of spiritual power that is helping people and is good for people, that the devil tries to counter that by his own activity and demonstrating his occult power. Well, Mark makes it quite evident in all these situations that Jesus' authority extends over Satan's kingdom, and Satan really uh, cannot fight back against him. But the main focus, as I said, of this encounter is not between Jesus and a demon. It is the conversation that he has with this woman who is really an unlikely candidate for a hearing with him. Let's remember that in the eyes of an Orthodox Jew, such as the Pharisees and the scribes and others who are mentioned, that this woman would have very little going for her. First of all, she was a woman. Uh, according to them, no respectable teacher, no respectable rabbi would spend their time talking to a woman. Uh, the disciples that followed these rabbis, they were men. And uh, unfortunately, many of the Jewish leaders looked down on women. So that was kind of going against her. Then Mark emphasizes her, her background. She is a Greek. Now that doesn't mean that she was Greek uh, as far as her nationality. 
What that meant was she was living in a Hellenized territory. It defines her as a Gentile. Uh, the region there was uh, settled by the Greeks and then later the Romans. As he goes in and defines her ethnic background, we find that she's Syrian as well as Phoenician. Now, Syria was under the rule of Rome. It was one of the provinces of Rome. Phoenicia was the, the ancient region that came into contact with Israel so often, and actually they became uh, enemies with each other after the time of Solomon. So this is where she's from. This is her ethnical background. That means that culturally and religiously, she would be far separated from the beliefs of Judaism and thus looked down upon by the Jews. And finally, her request was that this unclean spirit would be taken from her daughter. And that, again, is the issue of what makes you clean, what uh, makes you impure. And so everything here is against this woman uh, being able to have the, the Lord Jesus answer her request in the mind of the normal Jew. But she comes to Jesus anyway, and she obviously believes he has the power to help her daughter or she wouldn't have come. So she comes uh, before him. She falls down in front of him. That's the posture of respect, possibly worship, and imploring him to release her daughter from this spiritual bondage. Now, Matthew's account stresses her persistence. She kept on begging the Lord to do this. Uh, to the disciples, she became very annoying, and they complained about her and asked the Lord to send her away because she's bothering us so much. And Jesus himself, in Matthew's account, seems to pretty much ignore her, just shy of dismissing her. So what he says to this woman may seem a little shocking to us. So let's take a look here at what's going on as she comes and asks the Lord Jesus in verse 26 to cast this demon out of her daughter. Jesus responds, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. All right. Jesus, in a sense, is playing devil's advocate. Perhaps he's testing the motive of this woman behind her request. Does she really have faith in what he can do? Or does she merely want her child to be healed and then go on her merry pagan way? So Jesus addresses her with this proverb. Let the little children be fed first and... Uh, uh, here's where it starts to get a little bit interesting. Now, the children in the parable are the Jews, the people of God, Old Testament. The bread is the gospel of the kingdom, the teachings of Christ, and the dogs are the Gentiles. Now, what would you do if somebody came up to you and called you a dog? <laughs> uh, that might be fighting words, right? 
Well, uh, that seems a little bit harsh to us coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? But that is how the Jew viewed the Gentile as unclean scavenger dogs that roam the streets in the countryside and you just stay away from them. Now, Jesus softens the meaning by using the diminutive form. It means little dogs or puppies, the pet animals that might gather around your table hoping for some scraps to fall off. If you know an animal, you know what we're talking about uh, if you have a dog. Now, nevertheless, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God comes to the Jew first. They are the children. They are going to be fed first. And you can't give the bread uh, to the dogs first. So here again, we have that bread motif that's, that's coming out since the feeding of the 5,000. You remember back then that, that Jesus fed 5,000 men uh, and he taught them from that that he was the bread of life that had come down from heaven. So the idea of bread is not just feeding people, it's spiritual as well. Um, one commentator wrote this, Bread here is an image for the blessings of the Messiah's ministry to his own people. And following on from this incident among the Gentiles. Now, next time we're going to get into chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000, that does not occur in the homeland. It occurs in Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee. And so that's demonstrating that the bread of heaven is for the Gentiles as well. The disciples are not going to get it, though. They're again presented by Mark as kind of spiritually dull at this point. So what's amazing here is that this Syrophoenician woman, this non-Jew, this Gentile, understands what Jesus is talking about in that parable. And she's grasping the meaning of what Jesus is saying. Okay? Now she answers the Lord in verse 28, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She understands her place, and she's both humble and witty in how she responds to the Lord. She agrees with what Jesus has said, and uh, how he's characterized her in relation to the Jews. But then she remarks that even the little dogs get some of the crumbs from the table. They may not be fed first. They may not yet get their fill, but they do get something. So what she's saying to Jesus is that whatever you're willing to give me, I will take it because I believe you can grant my request. Again, reading from a comment, putting it more theologically, the mission of the Messiah of Israel, while it must of course begin with Israel, cannot be confined there. The Gentiles may have to wait, but they are not excluded from the benefits which the Messiah brings. So on the basis of this conversation, the basis of how she presents herself, 
Jesus grants her request in verse 29. He said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And once she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Now Matthew records that Jesus mentioned her great faith. And there's only a couple of times that Jesus mentioned someone having great faith. Guess what? Both of those times it was a Gentile that demonstrated great faith. So because of her faith, demonstrated in this bold response to Jesus' parable, he casts out the demon from her daughter. And here again we have an instance where he performed a miracle without actually being physically present or audibly saying a command to come out. So Jesus, again, his power is is conveyed here uh, in an astounding way that he doesn't have to be present uh, to perform a healing or a casting out of a demon. And so, again, uh, his divinity is shown in that. Now, the woman's trust in Jesus stands in contrast to the religious leaders that he has come into uh, a confrontation with, they should have known better. They had far more scriptural knowledge than this woman had. They should have no excuse in believing him and understanding who he was. And she, in her faith, believes he can take uh, a demon out of her daughter. She also is a rebuke to the disciples who will find in the next chapter still not getting it about this idea of the bread. So she's a a great example to us of the, the future movement of the gospel into the Gentile regions and their acceptance of it while many Jews would reject it in the future. Now from this point, Jesus continues his journey that will be outside of the land of Israel. Uh, We're told here in verse 31, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you look at a map, uh, you're going to find that that area is pretty mountainous. And uh, uh, the, uh, the description of the journey uh, is is so strange to some expositors, they don't even think that Jesus made it. Uh, but uh, again, he's away from people. He's dirt- taking this time to teach the disciples. They're probably not going to a lot of regions that are populated. And so over time, probably over a number of weeks, maybe even months, they're traveling through this area. They come around the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they go in the region of Decapolis, which means ten uh, towns, uh, which was uh, populated by the Greeks when they were in control. Now it's in Roman control, and it's just about completely occupied by Gentiles. So again, another region that would be looked upon as taboo. If you went in there as a Jew... Uh, to do commerce or whatever. When you came back, you have to uh, uh, take your clothes off, shake off the dust, and take your sandals off, shake off the dust to show that you're wiping the pollution away as you come back into the, the nation of Israel. So, again, Jesus is pointing out that uh, 
Going to these places in itself does not make you a polluted person. All right. So what happens when they go, go there? Obviously, people have heard of Jesus in this region as well. Um, uh, you remember that one of our uh, healing stories was on the other side of the Lake of Galilee, uh, a region called Gadara, and that's where Jesus cast out legion, many, many, many demons from a person who was living in the tombs. And uh, he went and told people about what happened to him. And I'm sure that spread all over the place, as well as people probably coming and hearing about Jesus themselves personally. So he's, again, not unknown in this region. So as he comes into this region, they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. So again, we have people coming to Jesus, pleading with him to do a, a work of healing, a, a, a miraculous work. Okay. Now this miracle is only recorded by Mark, and it's the first one that describes Jesus healing someone with this type of disability. As in most cases, a, a person who is deaf, uh, is going to have speech problems. They may not be able even to talk at all. Again, here we have a word that we don't find anyplace else in the New Testament, and uh, it means he had problems enunciating clearly. He spoke with difficulty. He may not even have been using words, so it's pretty much impossible to communicate with this person and understand what he's saying. It's not clear if he was born that way, or if this was a result of some kind of an accident or something else that happened to him. Now, folks, have you ever thought about losing one of your senses, what it would be like? Uh, you come to church, and uh, you can't hear the singing. Uh, unless you can read lips, you can't, you can't understand what the preacher is saying. You can't hear the voice of your spouse. You can't hear the voice of your children. You can't hear the voice of your friends. You can't hear the instructions that are given to you at work. Uh, what would it be like to go through life deaf? Now, some of you are thinking, well, there's certain people I would like to be deaf toward. <laughs> but you, you understand what I'm saying here. Going through your life and not being able to hear, therefore probably not being able to speak properly, and you are definitely handicapped when it comes to communication with others. And Jesus is going to correct that in this man's life. And I, I kind of wonder what this man was feeling as Jesus uh, takes him out of the crowd and gets by himself. So how does he go about healing this man? Now Mark spends some time explaining the procedure of Christ's healing that we don't really often see. It's usually something that just happens and there's no description of what went on. And he also does this in the next chapter when he heals the blind man. Because the disciples uh, come to a full confession after that healing. Uh, some folks think that perhaps these are demonstrations um, visibly of the disciples coming to the spiritual understanding of who Jesus is because they confess him as Christ after the blind man's healed. 
Now, I don't know how far we ought to go with that interpretation, but it's kind of interesting to think about. They haven't been, they've been hearing, but they haven't been understanding. They've been seeing, but they haven't been understanding. But then all of a sudden, they understand completely who the Lord Jesus is. Now, let's take a look at the procedure of the healing here. Down to verse 33. He took him aside from the multitude, so that's the first thing he does. He draws them away from the crowd so that he can give his immediate full attention to this man, face-to-face type of situation, but also that the man will focus solely on him. And his actions are then visual indications that he's going to do something to help this man. Then we're told that he puts his fingers in his ears. Now, the word, the verb there means to, to thrust. So that suggests to me that he didn't just touch his ears. He actually put his fingers into the opening of the ear canal. So that's communicating to this man, I'm going to do something about your disability. All right? And then he spits. And we think, well, Gross. Do you think about that? Now, we don't know if he spit on the ground and then he put his fingers on the man's tongue or if he spit on his fingers and then put it on his tongue. And it's even worse, right? So, well, that's kind of strange. Well, back in that time, uh, believe it or not, uh, people associated healing powers with saliva. And so Jesus was, by that visual communication, uh, pointing the man to the idea of, of healing. Whether he touched his tongue with a saliva or just spit on the ground, he's going to see and communicate that has something to do with healing. Now, of course, we know that uh, that itself doesn't. It was the Lord Jesus himself that provided the healing, but it was associated in his mind on that day that, again, something great's going to happen here. Then the Lord Jesus looks up into heaven, uh, the abiding place of God the Father, and he sighs. And why did Jesus sigh? Well, it doesn't tell us exactly why, but it's been suggested that perhaps uh, he, he, he does that as an indication of his own sorrow that these types of conditions exist in the world because of human sin. They're the consequence of sin. Disease and deformity and disability, how did they come into the world? Well, they came into the world with, with death. And death, of course, the result of our sin. So he sighs, and then he speaks just this one word, aphatha, which is probably Aramaic, and Mark translates for us, he said, be opened. So his ears will be open to hear, his tongue will be open to speak, and immediately the man is able to hear and speak clearly. So another miracle is performed by Jesus. Now what happens then? Well, uh, the usual type of thing. 
in verse 36, Jesus commanded them that they should tell nobody. And we kind of wonder, why did Jesus do this in, in many of the occasions where he was healing somebody? Why would he not want them to go and tell people what happened to him? Especially when we think of the other time he was near this region uh, and he healed the, the man, he cast out the demons, and he told that man to go back home and tell what the Lord's done for you. Why did he do that here? Well, we don't really fully know, exactly know. We know why he did it in Israel, because he didn't want people to have the wrong idea of him being a Messiah prince and making him a king. That wouldn't have been the issue here because there were so few Jews. They were just almost all Gentile. So they wouldn't have that same type of interest. So the only thing I can think of is, again, Jesus had not come there primarily to minister and to gather crowds of people. He came there to minister to his own disciples and get away from that. But it was impossible for him now to go anywhere incognito. And uh, Matthew tells us that uh, after this event, well, people did begin to flock to him and he healed people and he, he uh, cast out demons and he did have a ministry to these folks. But the more he tells them, keep this quiet. Uh, we don't want everybody in the world coming here. They can't hold it in. And they're not obedient to his command. The more he said, don't do it, they went ahead and they did do it. We also notice here the response of the people is one of astonishment and praise. We see that almost every time, and it's, surely it's understandable. If we had been able to see these things back then, we would have had the same response. But in verse 37, again, we have uh, a word that we don't find elsewhere. They were astonished beyond measure, more than they ever had been about anything else before. Uh, extremely overwhelmed is the meaning of the term. And so it was impossible really from their perspective not to just proclaim this everywhere that they met. And what they were saying is he has done all things well, all things excellently. And that harkens back really to the book of Genesis where God looked upon all his creation and he said, it's very good. Same idea. So everything that Jesus did was, was perfect in every way. And so these people are praising God because they see somebody do something they've never seen before to make someone who's deaf mute and be able to hear and to speak. This also should have, at least to the disciples, brought to their mind Old Testament messianic prophecy ideas from Isaiah 35, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. So here's another uh, prophetic fulfillment in the life of Jesus, who they eventually are going to conclude is the Messiah, but not the king who is going to come and uh, save his people in a military sense. 
Well, if we draw to a close, let's try to bring together some thoughts and applications from these verses. First of all, this is an indication that the gospel mission would eventually open to all the world. It's not going to happen yet. Got to wait for Jesus to go to the cross and provide the sacrifice for sin. But not only will the Jewish people be invited into that kingdom, eventually the whole world will. And this Syrophoenician woman indicated by her faith that the gospel of Christ is going to be well received by Gentile people. And even though such people were looked down upon in that day by the Jews as unclean, as untouchable, Jesus was willing to go to them and open the door of ministry. And this really ought to make us think about our own attitudes concerning who's worthy to hear the gospel. Do we view certain people as unreachable, as untouchable, as unworthy of hearing the truth because they're such bad sinners? What about the proponents of political, incorrect, uh, in, uh, uh, political correctness? What about the drug addict? What about the criminal? What about the LGBTQ plus crowd? Oh, we want to stay as far away from them as we can, and we really don't have a lot of contact with them, to be honest. But are they in need of salvation? Is that what their underlying problem is? Yeah, it is. And we need to think about that. The Lord might put such a person near to you. Can we not share the gospel with them? Uh, We might get mocked and whatever, but... The gospel is for everybody, not just for certain ones. Um, We do not accept or promote their lifestyles or their beliefs or their condition. But does that mean the gospel should be withheld from them? What about the poor and the homeless and the collectors of welfare? These are people that need to be reached as well. And many look at all of them as untouchable Can't even bring the gospel to them. The spiritual pride, like the Pharisees, keep us from reaching people that we just don't like. So we need to be careful of not having the attitudes of that day that Jesus was kind of pushing out of the way by what he did. Then we're also reminded of the faculty Uh, The importance, I guess I should say, of hearing. Jesus has stretched uh, uh, stressed this in his teaching. The deaf man was physically incapable of hearing the words of Jesus. His ears needed to be opened so that he could hear and thus respond to the message. But then again, there's the spiritual idea of hearing. How many times has Jesus said, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. So we have to open up our ears to the spiritual teaching of his word. And you can hear spiritual truth and not respond to it, or really not hear it or listen to it, just let it pass on by. So we need to pray that the Lord will open our ears to his truth every time we read his word or we hear it. And finally, we are not under the prohibition to make Jesus known today. 
He wants us to make him known. We're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. And if really awed by his person and his power, we will do just that. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning your blessing upon your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you uh, in your earthly ministry had the power to heal uh, every disease, every deformity. Uh, you were able to cast out demons and thus showing your, your power. Uh, but Lord, help us to be reminded in this our day uh, that you are willing to go to people considered to be untouchable, uh, considered to be unclean, considered to be unreachable. Lord, help us not to have that kind of an attitude, even though uh, there are many, many people that we uh, don't agree with their lifestyle, uh, we don't agree with the, their, their lack of thinking, uh, but Lord, we pray you'd help us not to shy away from them, uh, to be open to giving the gospel to people we normally wouldn't think about doing that. And we're thankful that Jesus was an example to that for us. Lord, help us also to keep our ears open to the truth of your word each and every day. Bless us now, Lord, as we uh, close, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.